Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a dear friend of mine, Carl de Jager. Carl is an extraordinary artist who was born and raised in South Africa and has since spent many years living in the UK, Spain and Australia, all of which are places he calls home. Having first met Carl at Barcelona Academy of Art, his passion for the creative process has been an ongoing source of inspiration to me, and his captivating paintings communicate a deep interest in our perception of reality. Growing up in South Africa, having lived the double-think indoctrination of politics and religion, Karl carries a profound sense of disillusionment. At a fundamental level, he expresses that he cannot trust the reality that is presented to him by his environment. His story is a rich and fascinating one. In 2015, Karl left a successful career in software development in Melbourne to study classical drawing and painting at what was then the nascent Barcelona Academy of Art. After graduating, he continued on as a resident artist and was then invited to stay as a teacher and programme coordinator. In early 2020, as the pandemic was unfolding, he returned to Australia to exhibit his works and train in traditional and some non-traditional printmaking techniques before returning to Barcelona, where he is now based. Whether in print or paint, Carl's art deals with his subjective experience of life and draws upon a deep symbolic canon from existentialism and Eastern philosophy to metaphysics and psychology. When words fail, it is this symbolism and abstraction to which Carl turns to provide a language that can both understand and convey complex feelings and emotions, to which I would say we can all relate. So today I'm very excited to be having a virtual chat with one of my dearest friends, Carl, who is here virtually with me, even though we live in the same city, in the same barrio. So um, yeah, good morning, Carl. Good morning, Natalie. It's um, it's a real pleasure to be with you. And if I look out the window, I can probably see your house somewhere. <laughs> Not quite. There's some buildings in between. <laughs> yeah, no, it's quite pleasant to do it virtually. Yeah, it's funny because it's one of these things where you ask yourself, should we do it in person? But then it's just easier for the production side to do it um, via exactly. the side. So, OK, so let's start. I'm going to kick off at the deep end. And I think you'll probably be familiar with this question from the other episodes. But what do you think is going on in the global human psyche from your perspective? OK, um, from my perspective, actually, from my perspective is informed by everyone around me and by everything that I read and everything that I see. And I just have a feeling that we're in a moment of very big change and a lot of uncertainty and just an explosion of new ideas and new ways of thinking about things 
um, an incredible dread. Uh, I mean, nuclear nuclear war is on the table again. Um, or maybe it's not. Would we, would we be so stupid or wouldn't we be so stupid? It's not so certain as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And there's all of the stuff with climate change. Um, there's this problem with the society of post-truth that we're living in. And I think it kind of started or it, it kind of came into public consciousness at the time of Trump. Um, but with the new AI tools, yeah. it's just going to a whole new level. And I find myself hearing any story or seeing anything and immediately thinking, okay, is this image true? Is that mm. video true? Is it real? Can we believe it? And we, we just can't believe anything anymore. Yeah. It's, it's very strange and very disconcerting, but we're humans. We come up with really good solutions for things. We always have. So I can't help but think that we're going to pull our way through this one and come up with something new and interesting. <laughs> I love that. Optimistic. <laughs> is, that, is, is, that, is that enough? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because I mean, I think what you're saying about the post two thing, I was having this conversation um, with... Freddie just yesterday which was talking about how now every single time and in some ways it's quite healthy in other ways it's quite problematic but every time I read something or view something like a short clip or a meme some post that someone shares on Instagram or wherever it might be my first impulse now is to check you know what's the profile of the person who's saying this especially if it's connected to something which might be psychological or based around trauma or based around diet or based around fitness it's like okay what are your credentials and it's extraordinary how many people are creating content from a perspective which may or may not be well informed but who don't seem to have credentials to back it up and this is whether it's you know from an integrative background or a more Western scientific mainstream background, you know, there's got to be a kind of a body of work suggesting that people aren't just regurgitating what they've read elsewhere. And I think this is also part of the problem is because we're having to second guess those of us who, who are kind of alert to it or bothered by it, having to second guess every single piece of content we encounter and the amount of content that we're encountering, it just puts such an onus on the individual to try and sort through like what you say, sort of ideas that may or may not be rooted in reality. And that's a huge amount of cognitive labour that I think would be best placed elsewhere, like thinking of ways in which to create more sustainable systems or come together and have better, you know, community vitality, like better relationships. It's just like it's siphoning off all this energy that could be so much better spent elsewhere somehow. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I agree 100%. It's becoming a huge conscious effort mm -hmm. to be questioning information all the time. So a thought that occurred to me earlier today was um, for the past 10, 20 years, we've been talking about our people have to make sure that they unplug because it's better for your mental health mm -hmm. to just take some time away from your phone, etc. I think we're getting to the point where we just wouldn't be able to help ourselves but to try and just get away from these things because it's such a huge effort. So I'm finding myself just naturally unplugging, not because I think it's a good idea, it's just because I can't handle all of the stuff coming at me anymore. Mm. And so I think one of the things that you and I talk about quite a lot is 
<laughs> you know, kind of the ex- existential questions, which is great because that's what we explore in this podcast to an extent. And so I'd like to sort of open the conversation now to the main theme that's weaving throughout this particular season, which is how we might begin to reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancements, ecological disruption and systemic change. And I think, I mean, it sounds like a very grand thing, so mm. it's more as a an opening question to find a particular route in that um, feels like a good path. When we're thinking about our human potential in our lived experience, like in our lives, you and me as individuals embedded in a a community of people here in Barcelona and then the connections that stretch to family members and friends throughout the world. In terms of our individual and social lives, what do you want to see as the qualities that we nurture, sort of on a smaller scale as opposed to as a a species level question? Hmm. Well, the older I'm getting, the the more I'm starting to value connection. Um, I think there's also quite a lot of research coming out about the importance of connection, not just with mental health, but also with people's physical health and their longevity. Mm. So I think a cornerstone has to be for any kind of a future, a successful future for us is a way for us to be connected but I don't, I'm not sure in a, whether virtual is good enough. I think we need community, physical community around us mm. um, or close to us at least. I'm not sure. I think we will need many years of research to figure out whether virtual community can give you all those benefits that physical interaction can. Um, but I would, I would imagine that that would be a cornerstone. Mm. Yeah, no, me too. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff around co-regulation and touch and being physically present with others. Mm. And then I think also reducing the amount of stress and the fragmentation of attention that happens when you're on your phone. (laughs) You know, if you're having a conversation that's enriching with someone, like some of the, the evenings that, you know, our groups hang out together or coffees that we have, it's such a delicious moment to just dive into uninterrupted time with someone else uh, in a really embodied as opposed to kind of quite conceptual way Mm. something interesting with that that or something that just occurred to me was my reaction every time i go back to south africa because i was born and raised in south africa i lived there until my early 20s before i moved away to the uk and eventually australia then here but every time i go back to south africa even though it's been many years since i haven't lived there I just have this huge sigh of relief because I suddenly understand everything that is going on around me. Hmm. The expressions of people on the the way that people behave, the smallest gestures, um, everything just completely makes sense. I don't have to think or interpret. When I'm in Spain, obviously, there's a language barrier. So let's take the UK or Australia, both places that I've lived. Um, I continuously had to filter and interpret what was going on around me, even after many years of being an outsider, having to interpret. So I think there's so much information that comes to us that is not verbal mm. and that is not just visual. It's, 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 there's so much information that we're missing if we're simply doing things online or via text messaging or yeah, via new platforms. 
So let's talk about the intersection of art and technology because you are a phenomenal artist. I've got two of your paintings up on my wall and every time I have a Zoom call, someone comments on how amazing the paintings are. They're like, are they yours? I should just start saying, yes, they're mine, you can commission me. No, but they are your paintings. And one of the things that's obviously been quite present in conversation at this moment now is how AI is disrupting the artistic space as well as all these other spaces. And to give a couple of interesting updates, in February of this year, I was reading that Getty Images actually filed a lawsuit against Stability AI, who are makers of the AI art generator called Stable Diffusion. And Getty essentially accused this startup of misusing or improperly using more than 12 million images from Getty to train its system. And that's just one example of one lawsuit that's, that's been filed. So there's kind of, there's this question of, so many questions. One is of copyright. What does it mean to create? What's the creative process? Is everyone a creator? Who owns something if you work in tandem with an AI that you're simply prompting based on other people's images to generate something that is marginally novel through a combination of existing content? Like, there's so many questions. Yeah, I agree. agree. (laughs) What's the question that most preoccupies you as a professional artist? I am thinking about it a lot and often Mm -hmm. um, because it might... okay. From the point of view of commercial artists, illustrators, textile designers, it's already really disrupting those spheres. Uh, People are losing jobs because if you can get a machine to generate a pattern for fashion in seconds, why would you pay someone to do it? Yeah. Um, Commercial art illustrators, um, it is astounding and frightening to see these AI art generators come up with an image in a certain style. Um, and it's good. It's really good stuff. I wish I could say it's, it's lacking soul or it's lacking this or it's lacking that, but it's not. It looks like stuff created by humans. Mm. So I think it's really frightening from, from that point of view. So as a fine artist, I'm having to ask myself, what is the difference between what I do and what this machine can do. Now, in the short term, I think it's quite easy. Um, there is, it's a very, very much the characteristics of the, the intrinsic properties of the physical object that gets created. Mm-hmm. Something on a screen or something that's printed out on a piece of paper or, or on whatever you print it out um, can have beautiful colors, but it doesn't have the texture. It doesn't have layers of semi-transparent or transparent paint layered on top of each other, this kind of depth that you can only get with a physical object that's been created, well, where you can see the process in the actual object. However, I realize that these intrinsic properties, um, maybe for now, they're not, a machine is not able to create those, but I can't see why it wouldn't be possible to have a 3D printer create these things Mm. in the future. So I'm going to say that all of the intrinsic properties properties of of a piece of art, of an art object, um, I'm going to expect for a machine to be able to create that very soon. So that's the actual object is only part of the equation of what art is because there's also the viewer gets involved. And there's all these um, 
external or extrinsic properties that come into play. Um, the viewers, uh, where they come from, their cultural background, their belief system. So that influences what they see in your object. But then there's this extra bit as well, is what the viewer knows about the artist or about the process that went into creating the art. So the process becomes important as well. And I think for a long time, people have valued art or said that something is really amazing art if the viewer is able to appreciate the level of difficulty or the amount of work that went into creating this object. So perception plays quite a big role and that is where I've been really questioning myself is, okay, so the ability for AI to make the artist's life easier is tremendous. Mm. Um, I've been playing around with tools where you load a photo and it can be your own photo and the AI actually changes the lighting setup for you. Oh, wow. It changes literally where the light is coming from. Amazing. Um, which is hugely helpful. <laughs> Let's say I want to make an image where I've taken a photo reference and I want to add some stuff in the background. I want to add another figure or maybe some furniture and interior. Everything needs to have the, the same lighting setup if it's going to work as a realistic painting. I'm not talking about abstract art um, at the moment or more expressive art. So to have a tool that can help you with that is hugely helpful. Now, if I had to do it the manual way, I would have to do several photo shoots where I set up the lighting situation or the lighting setup to match whatever it is that I want to end up with. So it is possible to do it manually, mm. but it would take me days instead of minutes. Yeah. Um, but from the viewer's point of view, as soon as I find that with myself, as soon as I realized that AI was involved, I immediately think, mm, uh, okay, well, a computer can make that so it doesn't feel quite as valuable. Mm. Mm. If you see an image that was generated by a machine um, within seconds, uh, or you see an image generated by an artist and you know that they committed suicide in their late 20s and these are the final paintings, um, you're going to put a completely different value on that object that you see. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that that is something that we're going to be able to get away from. And maybe a large part of the art market gets disrupted and many artists go out of business but you're still going to have this niche of the where this art comes from and how it was made being really, really valuable to the person that's collecting it. Mm. I wonder if part of that is around relatability. Like I don't know what it is to relate to an AI currently, and I think there's something around recognising someone else's uh, shared struggles or... Mm. tenacity in, in creating something. You know, it's, it's like when you go and see someone's someone's work, whether it's the Sistine Chapel, which took however many years painting on his back, wax dripping into his eyes from the candles that he'd affixed to his head, like, you know, whether it's that kind of story or it's an artist that you don't yet know of that has spent their life in a cabin creating this art and then they suddenly have a retrospective and it's an extraordinary body of work spanning years and documenting their life. There's something about the relatability of the story or the struggle that is kind of points towards a very human... Mm quality of existence which I think at least for me gives me a sense of solace and 
and connection and not being alone in the things that I'm sort of grappling with or aspiring towards. And I think there's something there's something in that. Maybe it, it reflects something back to ourselves that is inherently human and uniquely human. And that's where the story part comes in. I agree. Mm. Um, weaving this in with the post-truth oh, yeah. <laughs> world that we're living in, the thought experiment that I've been doing is, okay, let's get the, the AI to generate an image for us. Then let's write up a story and a fake profile for the person that created oh. this in their history. As if it was someone that had actually made it, you mean? Or? Exactly. Your experience is probably going to be the same. And that's quite disturbing to me. Or would it? And that's where there's this other element that comes in. Um, sometimes people say that a piece of art has a soul. Mm. That there's something that the artist puts into that physical object when they create it that has something mystical yeah. to it. Yeah. And... In the first part of my life, I was definitely very much a scientist. Mm -hmm. I believed that the scientific method, everything has to be proved. Since then, um, several things have happened. I've had many experiences where I can't help but be open to the idea that science can't explain everything that we see in the world or that we experience in the world around us. And actually, let's just add here, before dedicating your time and your life to artistic practice, to painting and to teaching art, you were actually a developer. Yeah. So like you, you have experienced a totally different way of relating to the world, creating, developing, etc. Exactly. Yeah. I, was a, I was a software developer. Um, I think in my heart, to some degree, I'm still a software developer. There's <laughs> amazing creativity and elegance that you can add when you're creating software. But yes, I come from um, a tech background. It's something that interests me immensely. I get very excited about the future. I'm one of those people that um, would like to live for a very, very, very long time just so that I can see what's going to happen, <laughs> technologically at least. <laughs> I know. Um, depending on the day that you catch me. Yeah. I've thought about maybe if I could only... Um, maybe get woken up every 40 years and kind of live for it for for 10 days or something like that, I think it would get very lonely. Um, yes. <laughs> unless you had good friends that also woke up with you every 40 years at the same time. That would be quite great. A little travelling pod. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yes, I'm coming very much from a tech background. I do think that I'm quite a rational person most of the time. <laughs> um, but I've also had many experiences with things that just cannot be explained. Um, I dabble with the tarot, um, and the, the number of times things have come up that are just, they, you just cannot explain them through chances. You just cannot. Um, I have very good friends, um, that have gone through religious re reawakening um, and have had mystical religious experiences. And I know these people and I trust them. They're not crazy. There's not something wrong with their brains. They are actually experiencing this stuff. Mm. Um, so I'm open to there being other things that we can't explain or that we can't explain yet. 
that can kind of infuse the material world. So perhaps objects, art objects can have a soul that can't be created by a machine. I'm not sure. Mm. It's so curious. I also, um, you know, when I've stood in front of paintings, I, I recently came back from Paris to visit family. We went to two extraordinary exhibitions. One of them was Songlines, and it was this phenomenal exhibition of a group of people from Aboriginal Australia who are painting the stories of their land and their becoming as about the Seven Sisters and the chase that kind of maps not only the mythic creation story of this particular culture, but also maps resources in the land. Uh, it's not only a cosmovision, but a very practical way of communicating practical information, essentially. And it was extraordinary to see something like that because when you're standing in front of these paintings, there's, for me, there was a sense of aesthetic appreciation of what was being received by my eyes and my brain, like being able to understand these colours, etc., and the lines and it being quite different to my experience of Western art that I've been um, raised with. And at the same time, you'd then hear these extraordinary stories that infuse the art with so much more context and that bring it even more to life. But even just looking at the pieces without any context, there was something, some impact, some sense of vibrancy, perhaps, that I felt in looking at these pieces. And then we went to another exhibition of collected works from different parts of the world. And you could see, I mean, there's a section from, from Latin America that predated the Spanish invasion, where there were heads of sculpture that had been created to represent slaves that had been taken mm. for for instance, sacrifice to the sun god. Like, and these have a really specific quality. Even if you don't know the story, if you look at the object before reading the, the pluck next to it, there's this really sort of strong sense of, um, at least for me, of discomfort of, I don't want to be near this object because it feels like it's emanating something. Mm. And for those of us who've stood in front of works of art that have either reduced us to tears because of this sense of the sublime, which is something that people in the 1800s were very au fait with and talked a lot about, or whether it's something that gives us this sense of dread, like Louise de Bourgeois' art, her work is psychologically incredibly complex and incredibly powerful. There is something that gets transmitted. These works live on to communicate something which I think we pick up on at a very creaturely visceral level. Hmm. And I wonder if AI is actually not only intelligent, but then becomes self-aware and conscious. My kind of hunch is that it will also transmit its own isness or internal experience in some way that maybe we'll be able to recognize but will be unique to AI. I don't know. I mean, this is kind of, it's like the, the animistic tech argument, perhaps. It will be very interesting if we do end up with AI that has consciousness, um, how much we will be able to share with it, mm. or with them. Um, because we think that we're very different. They, they don't have the biological limitations that we have. They don't have the problem with death that we currently have. We may not have that for very much longer. But yeah, the, the inputs are very different. So the experience might be very different. But I, I can't help but think that the fact that we're both, we would both be creatures from the earth bound by, well, many common things that we might have some things in common. Who knows? Mm. Yeah, who knows? it's really hard to guess. Mm. So one of the things that comes into our conversations quite a bit is kind of the role of the creator. 
and to what extent we are vehicles for channeling or expressing or reflecting back the zeitgeist that we find ourselves in. And it depends on which bubble you're in and what content you're consuming or literature you're reading or what have you. But one area that's, that's being expressed a lot more and given voice to a lot more is the role of trauma, for instance, and how that shows up in society and what we can do about that, or colonialism or the role of technology. So do you think that we are vehicles to express a zeitgeist, that we're kind of channeling things? How much do we actually create and generate from within ourselves? Uh, I don't know if that's even a possible question to answer. Hmm. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and weave the AI back into this as well. I'm thinking specifically about stock images being used to generate new images. And I'm comparing that with the traditional way for an artist to be, or for many artists to be inspired, and that is going to an art gallery and walking past hundreds of pictures yeah. and kind of using them as a reference or to inspire you and then coming up with something that is some kind of a culmination of all of your experiences and things that you've seen. So true creativity or coming up with something completely new it doesn't exist. Mm. Everything that is new is a is just a new combination or a slightly different combination of things that have happened or that you've seen in the past. So I've got a feeling that maybe it's a co-creation between us and our community. Um, and perhaps that's why these fashions pop up. I hate to use the word fashion because... Um, I think part of the reason why I'm so interested or definitely part of the, the subject matter that I explore in many of my paintings comes through, comes from my own philosophical and psychological wrestling with who I am and what my meaning is mm. and the things that I can change and the things that I can't change and my perceptions about things. So I've got this constant wrestling and I'm always searching for for ways to kind of get to a place of peace with myself. So more recently, I've been looking into uh, embodiment. Um, I was reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And it opened up many new doors for me. And I started exploring in that direction. And then I saw something on the news and then I heard something from someone else. And I realized that, oh, um, this is not just me, this is in quite a few places. And I heard uh, trauma come up a few times and I realized that trauma seems to be something, trauma and ways to deal with trauma is something that is quite part of the zeitgeist or part of the fashion or part of the thing that people are interested in in the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, it makes me think of a murmuration of birds or a flock of fish that there are these ripples and each one of us is acting out by our own internal rules, but these rules kind of, there's correlation between us. And so we swarm in one direction or we change direction. Um, I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know quite how to word that, but that's the, the feeling that I get is that we're co-creating what it is that we're collectively focusing on, um, that emergence. And I'm bringing up emergence as a really good example of something that at the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, 
was a hot topic and everyone was talking about emergence and it was being used in computer programs, etc. Oh, wow. um, now, emergence just... Uh, the, the quickest way that I understand it or the, the easiest way they can explain the way that I understand it is that um, individual units have a certain set of rules that they follow and they're individuals, but collectively, when you combine them, it can lead to a system or something that exhibits a higher intelligence or a whole that is bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm. And I wonder whether that may be something that is at play, maybe our community or individual humans acting together creates something that has an intelligence of its own and that thinks separately from us. I love that idea. I love that idea when it's for the, the benefit of life and not when it's kind of, you know, a cult that gets... Oh, yes. <laughs> the intention of a cult that gets directed to creating harm. I think this is the other thing as well. It's, it's at least for me, when, when I'm thinking about art or the arts in its broadest terms including music and movement and theatre and literature, is that it also provides a space for us to conjure up possibilities of how we could live, how, how things might be, and warnings about what to avoid. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about George Orwell recently and states of war and how we need perpetual... We need, we don't need. Um, how nation-states and perhaps even corporations need conditions of competition and an extreme warfare in order to retain control over populations that might otherwise decide that they want something else in their lives, that they might want to self-actualize or they might want a greater sense of belonging or they might want to slow down or they might want to not be on their phones all the time. You know, there's kind of, there's something around um, the potential for art to warn us of the dangers that we're facing in quite tangible ways that we might not be able to articulate by ourselves or to give form to nagging feelings we might have about where we're going. So there's that kind of like the warning side of the arts and then the orienting towards a brighter, more enlivened future for ourselves and kind of this tension between the two. And also the use of art to kind of create contexts of propaganda where people can be led towards all kinds of things. There's so much power in the imaginal space of art and what it can Mm -hmm. elicit from, from the people that interact with it. And that maybe is one of the things that really scares me about this new world of AI that we're in, because um, we have to start thinking about the person that is using the machine to generate this art and what their intentions are and how the model has been trained and has it been trained to include subliminal imagery or we're not, I don't think we're there yet for AI to create subliminal imagery to mind control people through the images or to well one way of looking at a piece of art is that it's it's a it's a it's a virus it's a mind virus that as soon as you see it and as soon as you see the intrinsic properties of this art object it puts a bit of code into your mind mm. and generates a certain reaction with you so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in in that sphere mm. um Oh, I'm quite scared by that now. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> when you sort of take it into the kind of nefarious uh, side of the spectrum, it becomes quite mm. troubling. But we've always had that. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I feel a little bit down about the state of the world, I just remember um, that 
this has always been happening. War has always been happening. People have always taken advantage of other people. People have always been acting incredibly cruelly to other people. Um, and at the same time, people have always loved other people and looked after them and been benevolent and done all of the good things. What feels different, if I look at history and I imagine it as some kind of either a circle or maybe a spiral, mm. I would say maybe a spiral is a better analogy because the same thing doesn't keep happening. Similar things keep happening, but it's slightly different every time. But um, I wonder if we're at a moment with artificial intelligence where we might start to go in a completely different path. Um, there are so many questions. I think this is part of the reason why Italy has has banned or is in the process of banning ChatGPT, why so many other European nations are thinking about doing it. Um, we're at this moment where we have all of this possibility, all of these questions. No one is, feels completely certain about where things are going. Um, and I think there's so much richness for us to explore or in, in terms of art to explore in that realm, mm. in this moment in the world. It's funny because I think, I mean, there's so many different kinds of art as well. I went to an exhibition by Carlos Herais, who's one of our friends, hmm. the other day, and he's been experimenting with beautiful colours, with found fabrics and um, exploring what belonging means. And, and it's kind of quite a, a departure from the paintings he was doing previously. And so I'm conscious that each of us has a different relationship to the kind of art we create. And this is, you know, for you listening, if you're not quote-unquote an artist... Think back to when you were little, most of us, if not all of us, would have had some opportunity to express ourselves through pencils and pens and perhaps some paint and perhaps our hands um, chubby at age four or whatever, you know, dipping into the, into the colours and like putting them on the paper or on the wall. So we have a relationship with art at some point in our stories, most of us. And I think there's something really interesting in terms of not just the kind of art that we feel drawn to see or to create, whether it's kind of the more realistic art that you and I create, perhaps more traditional or the abstract, but there's also something about the process, the engagement with the artistic process that I think can help us to digest the time that we're in and ask the deeper questions in a way that feels perhaps a bit more tangible. I don't know, like for me, it's, it's, it's a way to find solace in beauty. Mm. And that might sound like a very simple thing, but, you know, for the three hours that I'm in the studio most days, listening to a podcast or listening to music and painting, those are three hours of just um, of somehow a refuge that I just don't get in any other way. Mm. And I wonder if there's something there about the power of the process of creating to plug us back into something which we really need uh, that's really sustaining I agree. I think that's, yeah, that's definitely one of the, the, the facets that we didn't explore very much is the creation of art being the purpose. Hmm. Um, and that the object that you end up with at the end not being that important. Um, I come from, traditionally I viewed, I put a lot of emphasis on the object as the thing that decides the value of it. But um, more recently, I've been paying more, more attention to what are the benefits of the process? Um, what 
do I gain out of the process? Uh, what can I gain out of the process? And art therapy, uh, it's a way of, of being embodied. It's a way of being in a moment and staying in a moment. Um, I would imagine that while I'm painting or while I'm drawing or coming up with ideas for paintings that I would be thinking of lots of other things, but I, I don't. I just focus and I'm there in the moment. And that is something that I find very valuable and appreciate quite a lot. In fact, more recently, um, I've been thinking a lot about, um, in the past, I would come up with an idea. I would then draw up the whole painting, maybe use photo references, put them together in Photoshop, get everything set up exactly the way that I want the painting to look, and then mm. copy it. <laughs> and that is something that I have found, it's just not fulfilling for me anymore. Interesting. Or it never was. I want, I want to be engaged while I'm making this piece of work. So I'm more recently I've been trying to build in more randomness. I might come up with an idea and say, okay, this is, this is more or less what I want, and I don't know what's going to happen at the end, mm. and I'm terrified of it, <laughs> and that's part of it. Oh. Because in those moments where I'm terrified and I do something and I think, oh, my God, that's amazing. Look at that. Look at that mistake. It's so beautiful. Um, that's something that I, that I value a lot um, and that I want more of in my arts practice. There's a, there's a lot of value to the process. And not just to me, I don't think you need to be a professional artist. Whether you're taking dance classes or Tai Chi or yoga or painting something, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what the end result is. It's being there in that moment with that physical object. Mm. And I think also there's something around opening up to the possibility of the unexpected mm. uh, and when I think about resilience and what we need to be able to to kind of venture through this really uncertain time and unpredictable future I think one of the the muscles we need to flex and build is the muscle to respond to uncertainty and to change without getting flattened by it or immobilized by it and so there's something around the risk taking and for you know I realized from the outside looking in like before I went to Barcelona Academy of Art the idea that there can be risk-taking with an artistic process from the outside looking in seemed quite alien to me. Mm. And yet when you're creating something yourself, you know, it could be writing a book or poetry or a song or whatever it might be, or a sculpture, there is something about coming face-to-face -face with aspects of yourself that might be quite challenging. And what do you do when that happens? Mm. Or making space for... Uh, some people think of it as the muses, and I love this this way of thinking of it, that, that there might be something else working through you. Maybe it's an archetypal element if you're taking a Jungian perspective yeah. and saying, OK, well, there's something that wants to be expressed here. Or maybe it's uh, a myth from one's culture that we vaguely heard of but suddenly wants to take shape, whether it's our own conjuring from our subconscious or something else that we're picking up on and then uh, giving giving shapes to. So... There's, there's something around our capacity for the unknown being strengthened, the capacity to take risk, the capacity to persevere as well when something's not mm. going well. I mean, yes. God knows that <laughs> one painting I was doing for 10 months and it was just, I was like, I will not let this go. I will not let this go. I am not, you know, I'm not abandoning this painting. Mm. And it was grueling and mm. the result was beautiful. And it felt like a triumph to actually get to the point where I completed this really difficult process. Mm. And so there's kind of 
it can it can create a space where we're having to really embrace and confront ourselves and the world around us somehow. Definitely through the process for sure. Um, deciding which which of your children you're going to leave <laughs> half formed or unformed or abandoned. Um, <laughs> yes, and struggling struggling through all of the days where you just think, "What on earth have I just done? What is this? This is hideous." Uh, this is this, or this is that, or this is, looks commercial, or this looks like this, or this looks like that. Um, and kind of just learning that you need to develop some kind of a, a longer-term view where what you feel right now, you know in a day or two you might feel completely different. Yeah, which is easy um, to say now in conversation, but hard in the moment. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> very much so. But it's also interesting what, I mean, this goes back to something that we discussed earlier, uh, where we were talking about the slightly more mystical aspects, when we were talking about whether we are um, vehicles or creators. Um, I do wonder, I do wonder about that. When the muses come, Mm -hmm. I wonder where that idea came from. Is it from me? Is it from the collective consciousness? Or is there something beyond, outside of the frame completely, that is making this stuff or bringing these objects into existence through us. Mm. What's your take on that? Do you, do you veer towards one sense or the other, or does it feel different depending on the work that you're engaged in creating? Ooh. <laughs> um, it's difficult to answer because on different days I have different feelings about it. My feeling at the moment is that my best explanation is that it's a it's maybe a co-creation mm-hmm. and that if you open yourself up enough or if you can get calm enough or listen enough um ideas come to you maybe they're from the subconscious um and if you go with them and explore them sometimes you can come up with things that feel like they have a lot of meaning or has that extra element that that you can't explain, Mm. that makes you look at it over and over again, your favourite painting, just because there's something about it that you can't quite explain, but you love just looking at it. This reminds me so vividly of the first time I saw both of your paintings that I have in my home, Creation and Flood, (laughs) and it was several years ago now, way before the pandemic, and it was an exhibition that you and the fellow teachers at BAA were part of, you are partaking in. And I remember looking over the room and there was, and I kid you not, this happened twice during the evening that I noticed, it may have happened more, but I noticed twice, that when people came over to your paintings, on two occasions, they knelt down in front of the painting and sat with your paintings. Oh, wow. And this was something that really struck me because it was a really, and I can see the image still in my mind of people sitting in front of, or actually it was kneeling, it was on their knees. And it was such a striking image for several reasons. One, because there was this, potency of wanting to sit with full attention in front of this painting to be with it and also the kind of supplicant gesture which you often find in more sacred contexts. Now you go to, I was raised Catholic and we'd have to kneel at church and as much as I hated that, um, you know, I, I would I would kneel for a sunset for instance. So there is something about uh, its relationship to reverence or some other kind of expression of... Um, 
I guess supplication might be it, or wanting to absorb something. It's, it's something that you see, a gesture that you see in more sacred contexts. And I think galleries can form sacred contexts in particular instances. And that really struck me about your two paintings, that there is something about them. And maybe we can, we'll link to, to your website. Do you have them on your website, actually? I, I, I'm pretty sure I do. I'd be surprised if I didn't. I'm pretty sure I do, yes. We'll put a link in the show notes. It really struck me. And then I just had, and then I had to have them say, well, someone else's, I can't bear the thought of someone else having these. It was the thought that went through my head. And I had it twice. One was that exhibition and there was an, a second time that you exhibited them. And then it was just, it was done. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> you can't belong with anyone else. You've got to come home with me. Um, um, yeah. Well, I built the golden mean into them. So the, the aspect ratio of both paintings used the golden proportion. The compositions both used the golden proportion. So there was, um, yeah, I manipulated you. You did. <laughs> but it's true. But also nature does this to us, right? Because you see this in, in shells, in ferns, in all sorts of places. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Yeah. I think um, for whatever reason, well, who knows? I don't know whether it was all of the, the thought and symbolism that I put into it, whether it's just your perception of it, how these things come together, but I'm really pleased I'm really pleased that it spoke to you and I'm really pleased that you have them because I didn't want to get rid of them to start yeah. with. <laughs> but it feels <laughs> really. like they're still part of the family, no? Exactly. Uh, yeah. One of my beloved uncles, who I absolutely adore, keeps wanting to, um, or offering to buy my paintings. And the ones that he wants are the ones I don't want to part with. And it's this mm -hmm. kind of, it's like, it's an expression of soul or an expression of threshold or transition or struggle that's made beautiful at least you know in, in my mind and and there's something about not wanting to relinquish some of these paintings I just don't want to relinquish into someone else's hands and it's mm. a really curious thing when you've created something um, and you don't want to let it go because it does hold symbolic and emotional value and meaning and I think other people can sense that I think people pick up that this thing is not just an image of whatever uh, there's more to it. It has a soul. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely am. So I'm, I'm sort of conscious of the people who are, various different people who are listening to this. And the more I traverse into the territory <laughs> of music and art and mysticism, I'm thinking, oh God, am I leaving people shaking their heads? Yes. But maybe that's okay. <laughs> okay, back to, back to the rational. Back to the rational. Um, so where can we take this next? I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about the role of art in current society and, um, what we can use it for if we're going to think about using it for. But um, what do you feel in your day-to-day -day life is the purpose of art? For me, it's a combination of um, me being able to be in the process of making art. And I need, I need that, I need that for I need that for my own mental health. Mm -hmm. Also, I am excited by seeing beautiful things. And if I can create that, it excites me. And it's not because I'm um, full of myself, but if I make something that I find beautiful, I'm really, really happy with it. And I continue to find it beautiful. I don't just think, oh, I made that. I'm amazing. I just think, <laughs> oh, this is so beautiful. I love this so much. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
So there's the process, there's the object that you end up with, and then there's the sharing that with other people, the connection um, that is also important to me, to know that people are not just seeing what I intended with an image, but also the fascination with what people, what other meanings people find mm. in my paintings. Um, and sometimes in that discussion, I see an extra, an extra level of meaning that I didn't see there before. It's kind of, we're, we're, we're exploring it together. So art is a means of connection, of dialogue, of talking, I think can be quite important. The shadow side can also be the fact that we're creating art in a very capitalistic context and it can sometimes kind of fall into the category of a mirror for the way that we value things. So you, this often comes up with many, many folks that I know and is probably going to become an even more pressing question with AI replacing creative jobs. But, you know, at what point do we sacrifice or negotiate with ourselves or compromise the artistic integrity of a piece of art in order for it to sell, in order for, for us to be able to make a living, mm. if that's what we're choosing to spend all our time doing. So what do you think about art as a, as a reflection of capitalism and the fact that it's now content, it's not a creative piece somehow? Capitalism and platforms and the societies that regulate these platforms. Um, I mean, the Instagram nudity filters, uh, they blow my mind because... There's asses everywhere and you can't do a long pose. I know. Um, but the girl in the wet, in the wet white t-shirt with big breasts um, is everywhere. There, there's so much stuff that yeah. I see on Instagram or on the socials that I just think, how on earth am I being yeah. edited for showing, uh, for showing not even genitalia? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anyway, so that aside, <laughs> you asked me earlier um, where I'm at with with process, how I think about these things, and that's definitely a factor because I know um, I've read many online articles or people that are saying this is how you make successful art and unfortunately it's the truth um, do the same thing over and over and over again until someone notices you or until you make the right connections and then you become f fashionable um, that does happen it doesn't happen with everyone and all the time I uh, people are intelligent that they can see when something is well crafted but it does happen quite a lot mm. um, and I wrestle with this because I think, okay, so do I just look at my Instagram feed, find the most popular image, and then make 20 more of it? Mm. I could do that, and probably I would make money, and if I was clever, I would do that, and then do some other things on the side. But I find it very difficult to do that. But difficult on what level? Because it's not, I, I think there's, you you have the you clearly have the the skill and the intelligence and the capacity and the strategic impulse to be able to do it should you wish to but there's something that somehow feels wrong about it the way that you describe it that there's a reluctance okay here is something interesting that ai has brought up for me as an option i make two or three paintings in a certain style hmm. and i train stable diffusion to make more images in the same style 
they would be my style, they would be my images. Let's say I get Stable Diffusion to generate 100 of them and I pick the 12 that I like the most. Wow. You're outsourcing the imaginative process and then curating the ones that yep. it feeds back. And it's, it's now there, it's, it's a possibility for me, but it just feels so wrong. I feel like I have been lost in the product. Um, yeah. Is that just a perception? Is it something that I just need to get over myself? Uh, because that's a clear path to making money, but I wonder if the soul will get lost or not. I have no idea. I should try it, actually. We'll try it and see what happens. <laughs> then we'll, we'll jump back on the podcast mm. and talk about it. But the, the analogy that comes up in my mind almost instantly when you describe this is the difference between going on a journey, physically, I'm talking about like traveling, and all of the different things that you experience along that journey. And then when you reach your destination, you have this story that you've, that you've woven yourself through, that you've experienced, versus doing the same journey, but having kind of portals to different places. So instead of having to walk to the next village or, for instance, if it's the Camino de Santiago, instead of having to actually walk the whole length, you get dropped at different moments and then you can take a screenshot, you look around, you get dropped at the next one, dropped at the next one. Mm -hmm. But there's not this same marinating of the person through the experience. You're just getting kind of snapshots. And that's something, I mean, you talk about soul. I wonder if it would be something that would impoverish an otherwise hungry soul that could be satiated by going through this journey, by going through the exploration, through coming up against these these walls. Mm -hmm. I hate to be cynical, though. I <laughs> go, on. go back to what we discussed <laughs> earlier. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I struggled with conceptual art for a very long time, mm -hmm. is just get the AI to generate an image, make up a backstory. Oh, yeah. Um, will the viewer know the difference? They may not, but you will, as the artist. I and will. That's, some people won't give a flying, you know, but, but other people will. <laughs> mm. um, and what you were saying earlier about having certain paintings that you really love, I think nowadays for me, the aim is much more becoming making things that I found, I find beautiful and yeah. that I feel connection with. And if other people find that they have connection with it as well, wonderful. But my main aim should be to make images that are me, that are a part of me, mm. that are an expression of everything, my, my entire being on a piece of canvas. Mm. And I think people resonate with that. I remember years ago reading about how if you want to make a story universal, make it as personal as you can, mm. because there are these threads of resonance that will, will run through it, that even though they might show up in a very particular personal way, other people will be able to relate to that somehow. Exactly. So there's something about being really raw and honest and bringing yourself fully into it that I think we respond to. Mm. Kind of vulnerability. Mm. So we are coming close to time. I'm so used to having longer with you to be in conversation, <laughs> but before we close out, um, I just want to ask you one last question before we give people links of where to find you. And we touched on this briefly earlier, but I do want to bring it back in here. And the question is, how do you orient yourself towards life and wholeness and beauty on dark days? Ooh. Um... 
probably the most useful tool that I've found is remembering that how I feel right now is not how I might feel tomorrow and keeping that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, changing where I'm at or changing my circumstances can help quite a lot. So finding a way to surround yourself with beauty, whether it's in nature, whether it's a walk in a gallery, um, if you're someone who loves the bustle of a market, maybe it's just going to a market and being in a market, being around people, whatever it is, just finding a way to change my perspective. Um, it's about remembering to do that, though, because when you're in the moment and you're down in the gutter, um, it can be difficult to remember this. So maybe, maybe I should tattoo it on myself. Or maybe I'll get my phone to have some AI that measures my, my blood and my hormones and uh, sends me a little reminder whenever I need it. <laughs> the transhumanist artist. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and if people want to learn more about your work, and please, please check out Carl's art. It is just beautiful. Some of the favourite art that I've had the privilege of encountering. So please check it out. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at, on my website, which is carldejager.com. And how do you spell that for people? C-A-R-L-D-E-J-A-G-E-R.com. Or find me on Instagram, carldejager.art. Wonderful. Carl, it's such a pleasure. I'm so glad we get to share this with a wider audience and not just over our little cheeky coffees in the morning. <laughs> As always, um, I've really enjoyed this chat with you, Natalie. Thank you. And uh, thanks again very much. I'm really, really honoured to be on your podcast. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.